This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, 
Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Ryan Gallick. Now, Ryan is a fellow former Florida firefighter, one of the founding members of the Firefighter Safety and Health Collaborative, and the co-founder of the Mental Hygiene Project. So we discuss a host of topics, from the school shooting he witnessed at his middle school, his journey into the fire service, mental health, leadership, transition, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Ryan Gallick. Enjoy. Well, Ryan, I want to start by saying, firstly, this is a long time coming. And secondly, welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. And uh, certainly it has been a long time coming and uh, really happy to uh, be sitting here with you and having a, a, a conversation. Now, I think we first met on when we'll get into the inception of this, but I think we first met at the uh, Florida Firefighter Safety and Health Collaborative. If I got that right. Yeah, uh, maybe it was a, a conference. It was quite some time, many years ago. Um, uh, Orange County, I think it was, so their their uh, HQ. Yes, headquarters. Yeah, I believe it was uh, in January. I forget the exact year, but I, I remember it being January. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Yeah, I'm in Winter Park, Florida. It's just about five, ten minutes outside of Orlando, Florida. Beautiful. So I would love to start at the very beginning of your life. I know your your childhood has some pretty um, traumatic episodes. Um, so tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah. So uh, born July 11th, 1981 in Toledo, Ohio, and uh, was born uh, with, uh, you know, two uh, loving parents, Carol and and uh, Bob, and uh, one older brother who's uh three and a half years older than me. And so my father was a first-class pilot with American Steamship Company. So basically he uh, helped navigate and uh, run a thousand foot lake freighter across the Great Lakes. Um, you may remember the Edmund Fitzgerald or known of the Edmund Fitzgerald that sank uh, many years ago. He had friends on that ship. And um, needless to say, he did that for a number of years. And so when we were living in Toledo, Ohio, the great thing was, is we could go to Lake Erie, we could go to Lake Michigan, you know, maybe an hour or two drive, uh, you know, at the most, and see my father because he worked, you know, for long periods of time. And unfortunately, when we moved to Florida, maybe some kids would say fortunately, but for me, I felt it was an unfortunate circumstance, which in all fairness, my parents, uh, they took us, my brother and I, on a trip to Disney. And my brother and I were fascinated and they said, hey, would you ever want to move here? And my brother and I 
me being, you know, 12 at the time, my brother being 15, were like, yes, absolutely. And they literally left the decision to us. So um, I, I can't fault them too much. But anyhow, the reason I say unfortunately is because once we moved to Florida in July of 1995, it was where, you know, we couldn't make that one hour, two hour, you know, drive to go see my father. So we would go, you know, sometimes two to three months at a time and not see him. And then he would fly home for a couple of weeks, do it all over again. And the nice thing was, is that my father, you know, during the winter time when the lakes froze, um, he was home for, for a few months. So that was always nice. Um, and then my mom, you know, because of that schedule, my mom was a stay at home mom. Uh, she had jobs on and off, uh, purely because she wanted to work, not because she had to. Luckily, my dad made you know enough money to where she could be a, a housewife and and take care of my brother and I. Uh, but you know, she had some waitressing jobs here and there, and that's something that she enjoyed. She's very outgoing. And then I have, uh, as I mentioned, a brother. He's three and a half years older than me. He now resides in Alabama. Very successful entrepreneur owns multiple car dealerships. I don't even know how many at this point. It's not like five or six. It's it's way more than that. And um, my parents live just 45 minutes away from me. So staying on your dad for a second, I mean, firstly, you know, it's another example of, of how families will um, sacrifice so much just to put a roof over their head and food in their stomachs, you know, whether it's a military family or, you know, the, the um, merchant navy or whatever it is. One thing that's come up a lot recently is a lot of these naval disasters, when they look back, are kind of rooted in sleep deprivation. I've had, you know, John Cordell, who's a naval captain on, for example, who now became kind of a sleep expert out of the disasters that he witnessed. Did you or do you have any conversations or any lens on the the shifts and the impact that had on your dad and his physical and or mental health? Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you ask that. And I've heard you ask other guests on your podcast about, you know, certain dynamics to try to have it be a lessons learned or or have a comparison, right? Which I think is healthy. But the fact is, is that like most of your guests, I've not had those those conversations. And I for I'll speak for myself. The reason is my father, you know, he, luckily both of my parents are still alive. He never wanted to talk about his work. And, and at one point in time, that's what I wanted to do. And I'll never forget the look that he gave me. So in my opinion, while my father did have a complex childhood um, and, and, and lived experiences as a young boy, I, I would say, in my opinion, yes, that, that that career took a toll on him, not being there with his family. And I think I saw um, some of the, the effects of that when he came home. Now, I want to get to your middle school in a moment, but prior to that, I mean, as, as you and I both know, childhood trauma is one of the kind of elephants in the room when it comes to the mental health conversation. Your father at one point was was near, now he's he's further away. Was that or were any elements of your childhood contributing factors to some of the mental health challenges later in life? Uh, no, no. I, I I truly believe that that my parents provided a loving a home. Certainly there was dynamics, you know, but nothing to a degree or comparison of, of what some people experience. You know, I remember, you know, my dad, you know, yelling and, and screaming at times. Uh, however, I don't think that that put my brother and I in a state of uh, of impact, you know, later on in the years. I think my lived experiences with mental illness 
certainly arose from from the occupation and and i'm not in denial when i say that i think a, another part of it and i know that you know it will come here soon um the lived experience through middle school um so as far as you know my childhood i had an amazing childhood my parents uh, provided for my brother and i in such a loving and, and caring way they encouraged us supported us um and and, and still you know from arm's length distance uh, still do that today. So you have cumulative effects and you have acute effects. So up to this point, as you're mentioning, it sounded like your foundation was pretty solid. So talk to me about your move to Florida and then ultimately that incident in your middle school. Yeah. So again, you know, we came uh, to Orlando, Florida on a family vacation, July 1995. And, uh, you know, when we came home, my parents and, I, and my brother and I, we all reflected on that trip. And they, they genuinely asked my brother and I, if we wanted to move and they shared some of the benefits of the move, you know, the potential consequences of the move, you know, um, maybe having more of a, a challenge finding friends, you know, um, just because of the age that we were, you know, my, my brother being 15, uh, me being 12. And so we immediately said, yes, we really want to move. And what we didn't know is that the house would sell in two weeks In two weeks. And so essentially, um, here we are packing, preparing for a move, and we arrived um, in, in July, as I mentioned. And of course, I started school in August at Tavares Middle School. I was uh, in the sixth grade. And the reason I was in the sixth grade at 12 years old is I was held back in the second grade for a speech impairment. And I think, you know, while we uh, have not shared with the guests what I do for a living now, I do find it interesting that I had a speech impairment, went to a speech pathologist and um, really navigated my early years, um, finding my way. I, I grew up with a learning disability or what I would call now as a different ability uh, that really didn't happen uh, to me. Although I thought early on it happened to me, it really happened for me. And knowing what I know now, uh, I, I believe that I'm able to do what I do because of that lived experience. But um, started school in August of 1995. Um, everything was going well. And, you know, rode the bus to school every morning. And, of course, you know, my parents were checking in. Hey, you know, how's school? What's going on? You know, we'd have dinner and you know, then we didn't have FaceTime with, with you know, uh, FaceTime wasn't available. So it just sometimes be my mom or I or or my brother, my mom and I. And um, that all changed uh, September 29th, 1995. Um, up until this point of, of Friday, September 29th, 1995, the, the conversations at the dinner table slightly changed. I, I was sharing my concern about a particular uh, kid on my bus in my opinion, he was a bully. Uh, his name was Keith. And, you know, of course, mom said, you know, just ignore him, you know, make sure you sit away from him. And when I boarded the bus on this particular Friday, I saw that there was a larger group than normal. And 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 Keith was showing something in his backpack. I don't know what was in his backpack, but but Keith had had apparently something in his backpack that was attracting the students to look inside of that. And again, did exactly what mom taught me to do, just sit down, ignore it, which was a little bit harder to do. Of course, I was, you know, trying to figure out what was going on and went to my first period class. And it was when I 
um, was leaving my first period class that um, with Joey Summerall, uh, another student of ours, that I directly witnessed Keith Johnson uh, come from the hallway and shoot and kill Joey Summerall. And he shot him multiple times. And so I never would have thought being a 12-year-old boy that I would go through a school shooting that left my classmate dead, let alone a ride with a suspect. And and I myself do not look at myself as a victim here. Uh, sure, it's tragedy. It's sad. It's something that I, I think about every single year, certainly on September 29th. Um, but I would never have thought that a 12-year-old boy would go to school and and directly witness a murder. And as you know now, it's something that's happening all too frequently. Yeah, well, especially you got the the, the larger shootings that make the news, but I think in a lot of you know poorer areas or, or gang-riddled areas, there's a lot happening that people aren't even talking about where kids are getting murdered, whether it's in the school or just outside, but school children are murdering school children. Yeah, exactly. That, you know, and and uh, so we certainly have a, a growing pandemic on on so many different things. But in my opinion, that is what really um, that that was one thing that I never addressed uh, from a mental health perspective. Um, you know, they say kids are resilient. I think to what point do we continue to say that? Um, perhaps they may be a little bit more, but I, I don't think that we should dismiss it to a point that, you know, we don't need to ensure that they're vulnerable and talk to someone. My parents never denied it. I just don't think we even knew the things that we know today back then. Right. Um, so yeah, it was, it was certainly something that, that occurred that put me in the position of, of wanting to become a firefighter paramedic. Now, when you look back, you know, as a grown man, were you ever able to find out if there was a motive, any of Keith's background, you know, contributing factors that led him to that point? Yeah, you know, I feel like the, the truth has never really surfaced. So to answer your question, no, you know, there, there was speculation or supposedly he had a, a list of names. So could there have been more than than one person killed or or shot that day, there very well could have been. Um, however, I never um, have have learned of the exact motive. Uh, supposedly, I, I guess I do to a certain degree that that Joey Summerall had bullied uh, Keith. Now that I, I look back on that, um, but again, I have no hard evidence on that. Now, what about that incident? How was that stopped? Did someone intervene, or did he just stop at one in the end himself? Yeah. So um, what occurred was, is, is that there was multiple rounds. I remember um, immediately running, you know, 41 years old, I was 12 then. And I can remember it as if it happened five minutes ago. And I was with my friend, Stephanie, who had just moved here about the same time as me from New York. So Stephanie and I had had a connection in the sense, hey, we're both navigating a new school and, and had safety within one another. And so Stephanie, Stephanie and I, ended up running um, as fast as we could, of course. And we ended up in the library and another building. And so I remember, um, you know, telling the teacher that, that Joey had just been shot. And, um, you know, I think she was still trying to get caught up as to what happened, but certainly we were believable with our reaction. And um, later to find out Keith had ran into with a gun 
ran into the orange grove. Now, interestingly enough, fast forward, I ended up taking a law enforcement class in high school. It was a criminal justice class. And the instructor was our school resource officer, Officer David Myers, who I'm very close to today. The interesting fact, the reason why I share that is because Officer Myers was the first law enforcement officer to arrive at that shooting at Tavares Middle School on September 29th. And so um, certainly Officer Myers, who's now retired, he works for Motorola now, um, wonderful human being. Uh, him and I have had a lot of conversations about that over the years. And I remember, um, you know, him telling me that, um, you know, the the suspect, Keith, uh, leveled out his gun, but he didn't shoot because he was a kid. And, um, you know, luckily, Officer Myers was able to apprehend Keith uh, successfully without shooting him, nor without Keith shooting at Officer Myers and made a successful arrest. And today, Keith uh, is still in jail or in prison. Well, thank you for sharing that. I mean, as we discussed before we hit record, you know, we just had a six-year-old shoot a teacher deliberately, from what I understand. Um, and, you know, what I've talked about so many times, I actually just reached out to the Sandy Hook organization too, because I want to get someone on from there. Because, I mean, that appalls me when people act like that was a hoax, like we're going to set up an elementary massacre. Right. But when this happens, and I, this is what I see, James Gearing. I see two camps. I see the left is like, oh, you're not taking my guns. Let's have an NRA convention right next to the school. And then the other side is, you know, see, all guns kill people. Let's, let's take guns from everyone. And in the middle are these children and families and first responders that were devastated by this incident. And these two assholes are fighting with each other and nothing ever gets changed because it's polarized, just like COVID and, you know, Black Lives Matter and all these things that we've seen that it's been two trenches rather than let's meet in the middle and find commonalities and move the needle on this problem. You just said the magic word commonalities. It, 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 and, 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 you know, I certainly, uh, to your point, one thing I appreciate about this podcast is it's never, uh, in my opinion, politically driven. So I too will stay neutral. But, but in truth, to your point, you just said that there's a left and a right. And the key, we could even look at that as a paradox, right? I was talking about a leader, and I'm not trying to compare leadership to gun control. Please know that. I'm just using it as an analogy. Is that, you know, I said in one area, we have leadership that needs to be open and reflective, to, you know, before we hit recording. And on the other end, there's certainty. Well, the key is, is to be confident as a leader and, and be certain in your opinion, but also be open and reflective. And when you can be um, right there at the center, you have a healthy balance. That's what we need with this gun control. You know, I think taking away all the guns isn't the answer, but having full rights of guns isn't the answer. We we need to start having vulnerable and courageous conversations and start with commonalities so we don't begin with differences. And, and, and we create a foundation on those commonalities and figure out what is best in moving forward. But not doing anything isn't doing anything. I mean, it's just continuing to create more of a turbulent world, more of a tragic world with people living in fear and anxiety. And there's something that has to be done. Well, I think if you just singularly demonize firearms, then you're looking at just one slice of the pizza. And this is the problem. This is why it's not getting fixed is 
we're not taking into account, you know, sleep deprivation, bullying, you know, the mental health crisis, the side effects of psychiatric meds, violent video games and movies, all these things that create the perfect storm in someone who's already in crisis that then would commit suicide or homicide, depending on, you know, what, what route it takes or both. But what I see is a complete, you know, oh, you just have to choose one thing. And it's like, no, it's it's a combination of, of so many things. The same as, you know, we just lost a, a freaking firefighter here in Marin County yesterday, another suicide. Do you think it's, oh, it's just that? You know, I don't know this gentleman's background, but, oh, it's because he was going through a divorce. Oh, it's because he just lost his house. Or is it the compounding elements of, of you know, what happened in his childhood, all the things he's seen here? These poor men and women are getting mandatory at the yin yang. So we're talking about 80 hour plus weeks. So you've got all the sleep deprivation. You know, is there organizational stress? You know, I mean, all these things. Some of us have the foundation, just as you mentioned, pre 12 years old to, to have a solid place to stand. Some people, it's already shaky before we ever put the uniform on. So with this whole conversation, it's not just guns. It's not just mental health. We got to have all these conversations. And that's what needs to be in the middle is a group of experts from all these different fields that put their heads together and then say, okay, how can we positively affect mental health? How can we, you know, maybe maybe 10-year-olds shouldn't be playing video games where you drive around and murder prostitutes and, and police officers. Maybe that's a bad thing. I don't know. Maybe parents should be educated on the psychological impact of sleep deprivation when the children are up gaming all night i mean all these things have to be part of this conversation otherwise we're never going to fix it that's exactly right and and i think we know the power in numbers of when we come together uh, one of us is never as strong as all of us right and when we can bring a, a group of subject matter experts passionate people together in a collaborative form that is where change is going to happen. I'm, I'm sure later in the podcast, um, you know, we'll we'll be talking about the power of of numbers and and you know strategic groups and being able to achieve wonderful things. And um, I, you're hitting so many phenomenal points. Is that we do need to have all of these people come together in a room, find the commonalities, have the courageous conversations, and do something. But doing nothing is obviously only making the world more turbulent. Absolutely. Well, I mean, this incident happened to you 30 years ago now, almost. So you you have a, you know, a, a beautiful childhood up to that point. You have this horrendous traumatic event. What was the ripple effect of, la of that like for 12-year-old Ryan moving forward? Yeah. So when when we moved from Ohio, we, we lived in an apartment until our house was built. My parents actually live in the same home that they had built. And I remember, um, you know, having that experience while we were living in the apartment and then months later moving into our home. And interestingly enough, our home, uh, our newly built home was right at literally almost in the backyard until the fence was built. There was an EMS station. Uh, it was a uh, Lake Sumter EMS. And I remember going over there on the weekends and helping them check their their ambulance. And, you know, I shared the experience with them. And I eventually met one of the paramedics that that actually responded to the shooting. And anyhow, I, I believe that it was the combination of, of the experience of of the shooting and certainly beginning to meet these EMTs and paramedics that were living essentially 24 hours at a time in my backyard almost, 
uh, really created some healthy curiosity to me getting into EMS. And so um, when I graduated high school in 2000, I knew that's what I wanted to do. I, originally, I didn't know I, I wanted to be a firefighter. I knew I wanted to be an EMT. So that's what I did. I uh, enrolled into uh, Lake Tech EMT program and took EMT. So walk me through beginning that program to your first fire service job. Yeah. So as I mentioned, uh, in my early uh, childhood, I had a different ability with learning uh, apprehension. And so I was in um, special classes. Um, they called it SLD, slow learning disability, and SLD classes for majority of, of, of my um, middle school year. And I didn't go mainstream into regular classes until high school. And so luckily, I was able to graduate high school with a regular diploma. If I had not, then it would have had a special diploma, you know, showing that I had a different diploma. So I share that for this reason. I went to EMT school, which most people think it's EMT school. It's easy. I actually failed EMT school the first time. And so my parents, as I told you at the beginning of the podcast, loving, supportive, and and genuinely care as they do today. They're they're amazing parents. I love them to death. Um, they supported me. I, I was working at Home Depot in the paint department, and they said, well, you know, you didn't get what you wanted the first time, but, you know, you're going to try again. And I'm like, well, you know, it's going to cost money. They're like, it's okay. We'll take care of it. And so, of course, they took care of it, and they allowed me to enroll uh, into EMT school a second time. And so I took um, the program. I passed. And I went to go take the state exam, and I failed. So as you can probably guess by now, I'm not a, a great test taker. And so I took it the second time I passed and I thought, okay, great, I'm going to be an EMT. And so I was working as an EMT in downtown Orlando, working for Rural Metro. Um, and it was a, a wonderful experience. I I still have friends from that first job. Uh, you know, my, my dear friend who you happen to know, Brian Strong, um, we got hired on together at Rural Metro. Um, Chief Goff, we got hired on together. And so anyhow, uh, it was a great career, but I started, you know, quickly learning that this is going to fire-based DMS. And, and not only that, I really think I have an interest in becoming a firefighter. So um, I told my parents my intent. And so they said, all right, let's get you through, you know, minimum standards. And so I went and took um, minimum standards out at Lake Tech. I passed the first time the, the curriculum took the state exam, of course, failed. <laughs> so uh, I gave it a second shot, had to go out to Ocala near your neck of the woods and, and take the state exam for the second time. And I passed. And within a couple of weeks, I got hired on with the city of Tavares. And interestingly enough, my station um, was right across the street from Tavares Middle School literally right across straight from Tavares Middle School. So that was a, a full circle moment for me. Um, and then, you know, I, I had a great time at Tavares, but I really knew that I wanted to become a paramedic. I knew that. I knew that I enjoyed being a firefighter, but I loved, James, I loved being a paramedic. I, I One of my, my character strengths um, from the Character Institute, it, according to the, to the profile, is love. It's a love of people. And so I love being a paramedic. And so um, I knew I wanted to go to paramedic school. But before that time, I actually got promoted 
uh, about a year and a half into my career as uh, to engineer. And I became a driver operator. And it was at that time that I decided to go to paramedic school. And what's so interesting about paramedic school, everybody talks about how hard paramedic school is. And I won't lie, it certainly was a challenge. I graduated, and I only share this because of what I shared previously about uh, you know, my test taking and my different ability in my early years, is that I went to Seminole State, took my paramedic program, uh, graduated the first time around with high honors, took my state exam on the first try and passed. And um, that was a proud moment for me. And I, I would like to think um, just from what people tell me that I was a highly respected uh, paramedic. Um, people had confidence in my knowledge and skill as as a provider. So yeah, that's my story there. Uh, it was dynamic. It was interesting. There were some full circle moments, but really proud that I was able to achieve that. Well, firstly, I mean, coming from the, the learning difficulty, I, I haven't really got a kind of way of looking at my own childhood, but I've watched my son. He he definitely struggled with speech when he was younger. It was never never a problem where the school said he should take classes, but it was definitely being observed, but it was the learning. It was he was very young or is very young for his academic year. He's born in August, so he's kind of could easily be in the year after that. And he struggled for a long time. He almost got held back one year as well. And I've watched him do the same thing, go from you know, hanging on to that academic year with the, the skin of his teeth through to getting A's and B's. And from my own experience, I was a straight C student in school in England. But when I got into EMS and fire, I went to straight A. And I've talked about this with quite a few guests. When you actually immerse yourself in something that you're truly excited about and, and you get it, you understand the why. And I think academia sometimes fails on that side. Now math made sense, physics made sense, you know, all, all you know, anatomy made sense. And so, yeah, I mean, I was the same as you. When I got into the medicine side, I didn't want to be a firefighter that when someone drags someone onto the, the front lawn, I'd shrug my shoulders and go, well, I don't know. I don't know about EMS. I'm a firefighter. You know, I do the man stuff. I want to be the one that actually pulls them out of the building and then can go in the back of rescue and continue care all the way to the hospital. That, to me, is how you excel in the fire service. Yeah, that that that's powerful. Like a continuation. Not only did you make a grab, but now you know you're you're you know um, doing the the initial assessment, the ongoing assessment. You're treating the patient and and seeing that success all the way through. Um, you know, I'm 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 grateful. I I I was a volunteer for a short time out in Lake County. I was able to make a grab there. Um, Really? And, and, Let's stop you there for a second. Tell me, tell me about that incident because very few of us ever get that opportunity. Yeah. So, you know, gosh, this was uh, 2001. Two, yeah, because I was – they allowed me to become a volunteer firefighter because I, I had my EMT. I had already had my EMT, yet I did not have my firefighter two yet. I was far enough into the program to have my firefighter one. So they said, hey, you know, this is great. You know, we have a lot of firefighters here that are waiting to get a job. They have their firefighter two. We'll let you be, a, you know, a, a volunteer. And so um, it was late at night. The pager went off. And I was, I lived about, oh gosh, maybe four minutes uh, from the station. I think it was station 51. This has been years ago. And so I went and grabbed a, uh, a tanker. And so um, 
I had never had formal training on the tanker. Nobody had never taught me how to drive this tanker truck. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> right? And so and I want to get to the story of the grab it, but basically, uh, you know, I'm so excited. I'm new. I had EVOC uh, because, again, I had my EMT, but apparently maybe someone didn't tell me about, you know, the air horn, air brakes, that sort of thing. And I put that tanker up on two wheels, you know, making a turn. It was 441 and 473. I remember the intersection. And this was out by Ashtatula. Um, so it was it was a ways away. Um, Ashtatula to Station 51, probably, I don't know, 15, 15 minutes or so. Anyhow, get on scene. I'm one of the first on scene. Um, the engine arrives on scene. We There's three of us that go in together and uh, together collectively uh, start a search. And, and there was one victim. Uh, unfortunately, she ultimately uh, succumbed to their injuries. But um, it wasn't, you know, uh, right away. It was within a few days. So hopefully we gave, you know, family uh, some time to uh, to process that. But uh, yeah, so that that was uh, my first and only grab. Well, I mean, that's a that kind of underlines something that I've talked about a bit. I, I don't know if Lake County has a full time station now, but from, you know, English eyes looking at the way we do it in America, I've, I've always said this, if you live out in rural, rural America, where there's a, a a handful of homes in that whole area, I understand the volunteer system. If it's if it's you know getting people to those homes before the you know local county or whoever it is that, that's going to come and do mutual aid as well. But what blows my mind is a lot of these places now are suburban, and they still rely on volunteer fire service. And the question you know might be, hey, if we had a staff station close, would that woman have survived? You know, and, and when you when you triage, when you prioritize what is the most important thing in a city or a county or a town or a village, life safety should be at the very top. You know, yet sure. we still allow, you know, these towns and cities to have volunteers rather than paying these men and women to be full time firefighters and actually be in those stations. And we see the reverse. We see now full time fire stations that are being closed down. I was in London a few weeks ago and there's this 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 restaurant, this beautiful restaurant, but it said, you know, fire brigade station, whatever. And I actually met one of the, the guys from the fire brigade later that day. And he's like, yeah, that was open to a few years ago. They shut it down and they never gave it back to us. So everyone that's in, you know, that part of London, they're now one station further away from help, you know, and these are the discussions that you don't normally hear people having, but, you know, prioritizing public safety to me should be paramount in any discussion of, you know, local authority. Yeah. And we can look at staffing. You know, uh, I, I said I went in with the crew. Let me back up on that for a minute, uh, because I think the important thing to note here is, is at the time, this particular fire department only had, uh, you know, what I heard was sometimes just one person on an engine. This particular engine had two people. And so one one person was at the pump panel, of course, and it was the lieutenant and I that went in. And and I think that the, if there had been more people, maybe they wouldn't have allowed me to go in. I, I, I don't know. But the fact is, is that, you know, in this person's perspective, hey, here's another set of hands. Why would I not want the help? Right. So while this has been many years ago, certainly at that point in time, should we really have only had two people on, on a fire truck? 
And, and what were the potential consequences of that? One could argue that things could have turned out for this family and, and this victim uh, if it had not been such short staffing. Yeah, no, I agree. There's a, there's a very, very powerful documentary, and it's really hard to find online now, but it's called Into the Fire. I think it was uh, one of the fire organizations that actually put it on, but it was on the History Channel, I think, was the one that it first aired on. But it had... Uh, volunteers had paid on call and it had professional you know career firefighters and there was this one guy and i think it was like a combined system and he ultimately went on this call and again you can tell just from from the footage and the pictures that this wasn't out in the boonies this was in a suburban area somewhere but he goes on this fire with an aerial with a, with a ladder truck uh, but he's the only person and then when he gets there there's all kinds of overhead power lines and ultimately, he talks about hearing this thud and this woman had thrown a baby from the third story or whatever it was because she was burning to death and trying to save it. The infant died. She burned up. And this guy's doing this interview 20 plus years later and is just in tears. And this is the point. That man should never have been at that fire with that kind of apparatus on his own. You cannot function. Worst case, you need to you know, have a 35 and have two of you put that up and facilitate a rescue. But... You know, this is what blows my mind to this day. I mean, our firefighters are being worked into the ground and, you know, stations are being browned out and, and responders are being fired for vaccine mandates. And, and we've just got the priorities completely upside down. Yeah, you know, and, and what and I'm, I'm sure it's coming, you know, with what I do today professionally. Um, but, you know, that that's one of the great things about what I get to do today um, in my occupation is, is to be a firefighter's advocate while protecting my client's asset, you know, really creating a mutual benefit for the employee, the firefighters, the first responders, right, law enforcement officers, but also creating a benefit to their employer. And, and that's the beautiful thing. And, and that's my purpose today. So, um, yeah, you're right. There, there's a lot of things that we still have to navigate. Uh, you know, my mentor, Gordon Graham uh, says every identifiable risk is a manageable risk. So when we identify a risk, how are we managing it? And and it's not you know closing a, a an eye to it. It's really looking at it and and evaluating it and um, determining you know from a risk matrix where is it and and addressing these issues. But unfortunately, a lot of people aren't. Well, and we talked about this before we hit record. Um, and, and we'll get to the collaborative in a minute because I know you were kind of the the person who kind of was the genesis of that whole movement. But I just had a conversation with a couple of guys today from local fire departments here. You would think that if you were in a leadership position, the well-being of your people would be paramount. And if you look at some great organizations like Virgin, Richard Branson's um, company, their whole ethos is if you make your employees healthy and happy, then the customer will be healthy and happy. It's going to permeate. But what we see here is... There's this completely blinkered philosophy that, well, if, you know, if I won't look good in this budget year, I don't want to know. And the reality is the way that we have to do it for the first responders is, you know, we have to give them more rest and recovery. We have to staff our departments fully. That's just a basal thing that most companies get. Most corporate companies understand that. But even if you don't care about human life, which to me is disgusting, but say you are a bean counting psychopath, then you have the financial element. And if you have the economic true leadership understanding, you realize that if you invest in your people, you will save money hand over fist 
over the mental health and physical health costs that you know is happening because you're working your men and women into the ground from mental health issues and addiction to you know being sued because we lost our shit on a call or we plowed into a minivan full of kids because we were so tired or the injury side you know you cannot heal from training from exertion without sleep rest and recovery so this is what blows my mind is it should all be coming from a kindness and compassion. And so many of these people have the audacity to walk into a religious building and come out naming their religion and yet don't do anything that their prophets actually tell them to do. But aside from that, economically, if you're saying you're such a fucking good leader, then save your city or county money by investing in your people, fully staff your department, give them, in my opinion, 2472 should be the, the gold standard in the fire service. And you'll be a rock star, but you won't be a fucking rock star this year. It's going to cost you more money. But people will look back five or ten years from now and say, thank God Person X did what they did because our lives changed and we haven't had a suicide in X amount of years. And, you know, our, our worth, workforce is healthier and happier. And, you know, that's exactly what we want. And therefore, our ability to save and do our job has, has you know, increased exponentially. You know, everything that you said, yes, 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 yes. Uh, you know, did did you know that unhealthy workplaces are the fifth leading cause of death? I, I mean, think about that. The workplace, unhealthy workplaces are the fifth leading cause of death. The research is there. We, My company works, and again, I don't want to jump ahead, but we we have a director of research and learning, and he does all of our technical papers. And, and one of the technical papers called Leading for Health, he writes, unhealthy, stressful workplace environments in the U.S. are responsible for 120,000 excess deaths per year. 120,000. And that there puts the workplace at the fifth uh, leading cause of death. Yeah, no. And then also, if you look at the mental health side, another elephant in the room is organizational stress and betrayal, you know, and I've had so many people on here that have had grabs and, you know, been on so many, any, any firefighter that's been on for more than, you know, a few months is going to see and do some horrible stuff. But so many of them, they actually, you know, point to toxic leadership, you know, some of the crew members, whatever it is, as their biggest compounding stressor. And I know, you know, numerous suicide people have made posts before they took their own life citing that. Sure. You know, I, I remember here locally, the Pulse nightclub shooting. Um, I, I had a hand in, in some of that. I don't know if we, if you know that, but um, what, what I remember is, um, you know, the, the two firefighters that, that, um, got terminated, um, which, which is sad, you know, from, from a local department. And I believe they got their jobs back. I, I don't know the full particulars, but, but you're right. And, and leaders have to understand that there's, there's something called the psychological contract, the psychological contract, you know, and, and, and employees understand that there's a written contract, right? Here's my role, my responsibilities, my expectations as an employee, However, there's something called the psychological contract. I recommend that everybody look it up. But essentially what the psychological contract is, is an agreement, an, a mutual understanding that's unwritten between an employee and an employer to this is what I need to be supported, valued, and heard. 
I, I want belonging. I want to be respected. I want healthy work conditions. I, I want the, the tools and, and the education to be able to do my job well. And when an employer or, or a particular leader, supervisor, doesn't provide that or ignores that, then essentially they're violating the psychological contract, which can cause grievance and or resentment. And all of this has a human and financial impact. So, I mean, there's another thing called perceived organizational support. I mean, we could go through all of these things that that really leaders have to tap into to, to help define a culture rather than default to a culture. We've defaulted to a culture, and, and not just the fire service, all across the board. Too many people are wanting to default to a culture of stigma, taboo, uh, lack of empathy, respect, belonging, lack of inclusion and diverse. Like, it is 2023. A long time ago, we should have been defining a culture. And, and there's some organizations that do. We both know that. You know, we are not here to just you know, shine light on, on you know, what the fire service could be doing or should be doing. There's a lot of good that's going on. And, and I'm lucky enough to work with some clients that, that are doing great things. However, we can still do more. And I think the conversation on cancer is important. I think mental health is important. Um, ergonomics. I mean, all of these things, right? Leadership needs to be paramount too, and begin having the discussion on how do we strengthen the psychological contract? How do we establish it and or reset it? What is perceived organizational support? What is, um, uh, you know, psychological safety? What are, you know, I mean, all of these things. We, we need to really begin teaching leaders. And, and it starts at at the uh, the fire officer level, right? And, and I believe that the state is focusing on more of that. But for a number of years, you took tactics and strategies. You took systems one and two to learn about fire alarm systems. There was no real leadership theory and, and personnel management and inspiration there. there. There's still a lot to do, my brother. Yeah. Well, ownership would be another good one. You know, leadership, you know, lead from the front is the, is the best form of leadership, you know, and I think we'll get to this next, but, you know, firefighter fitness. You know, if you're sitting on the front seat and, you know, you're a liability in a, in a, in a crew, what does that tell the rest of your crew or your battalion or your department? You know what I mean? So there has to be an ownership of so many areas. And the other side is the mental health. If you're the guys talking about rubbing dirt in it and suck it up, then you've got no business wearing any sort of bugles that show leadership because you're not a leader. You're, you know, you're toxic for that particular department. Yeah. I mean, you're right. I, uh, I, I think leadership is, is a core foundation skill that, that we need to, uh, teach um, in the fire officer programs. I think that we need the continuation um, well throughout the person's fire service. We, you know, NFPA 1500 talks about behavioral health starting in recruitment and entering, uh, ending in retirement. My company, we say it's a hire to retire approach. Same thing with leadership. You know, it, it it's a gift to lead. It is a gift to lead and respect is to be earned, not to be given. And I think that, um, you know, people really need to, to ask themselves, what kind of leader am I? Would, would I want to follow, you know, me? If, 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 you know, I was another person 
and and I was looking at this person myself as a leader. Would I want to follow that person in a fire? Uh, it, just in in life. So there, there's a lot to be done. There's a lot to be done. Absolutely. Well, I know that you kind of picked up the torch when it came to the firefighter wellness issue. So talk to me about when you realized that there were physical and mental health um, challenges and what made you be basically the genesis of the collaborative. Yeah. So um, I got hired on with the city of St. Cloud. Um, it was 2007 that I left. Well, there was a transition period between the city of, of Tavares and going to St. Cloud. And I want to answer your question. Um, yet, I think there's an important fact of of what I did in between because I actually lost my fire service career. And luckily for St. Cloud, it picked back up. So it's actually kind of interesting. Do you mind if I no, please, please, that, please go put that in there and then I'll answer your question. I, I think it's, it's interesting and, and you'll find it uh quite um, dynamic on, on how I got hired back into the fire service. So I was working for the city of Tavares, as I mentioned earlier, as an engineer, I knew I wanted to become a paramedic. So I went to paramedic school and I graduated. Well, upon graduation, I got hired on with a local fire department here in central Florida. And it was contingent upon me passing my firefighter physical. Well, interestingly enough, I have a hearing deficit that started way beyond, uh, way before the fire service. And so I had two sets of tubes as a, uh, as a kid at 12 years old, I had a ruptured eardrum. I needed surgery on that. So I ended up getting an ear surgery in my left ear. And so I put my two weeks in at Tavares because I wanted a gap so I could do some traveling. I'm a world traveler, been all over the world. And so not to digress, I, put in my two week notice and they began the hiring process. They already had a list. And so there was a conditional offer of employment given to an individual um, to essentially fill the void that, that, you know, my position had. Well, I go for my firefighter physical at this fire department and I don't pass the hearing test. I don't pass the hearing test. I'm like, what the hell just happened? Like I no longer have a fire service career. So I ended up becoming a paramedic at Universal Studios, a special events paramedic. I, um, you know, worked, you know, day in and day out, you know, with, with general guests. But then I also was a special events paramedic working with America's Got Talent, Ellen DeGeneres, the Goo Goo Dolls, uh, Jennifer Lopez, um, Hard Rock uh, events. And so that was really, really cool being able to experience that and uh, having that experience. I started putting in applications and there was somebody at Universal that said, oh, hey, my fire department's hiring. And, and so I said, okay, what's the department? They said City of St. Cloud. And so I fill out an application, I get hired, and now I'm scared as shit going for my medical evaluation, right? I passed the test. I passed the test. They didn't do a hearing exam. I mean, I, I I forget the name of the company. It wasn't that much of a comprehensive physical. And so that was that was the start of, of identifying a few things for me. Let me explain. So now I'm hired on with 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 the city of St. Cloud, 2007, had a wonderful career there. And I went until 2018. But during that time, 
it was about in the area of 2015 that we had a new chief come to St. Cloud. And this chief, Chief Sturgeon, my mentor, my dear friend, happened to hire me in the fire service at the uh, city of Tiberias. Was that Bill Sturgeon, previous uh, Orange County? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Amazing guy. There's all kinds of twists and turns here. I hope everybody's sticking with us here. So he hired me into the fire service. He now is my assistant chief at the city of St. Cloud. And within a couple of weeks, he's a staunch firefighter safety advocate. This man is amazing. And he said, do you guys don't have a safety committee? He's like, this is ridiculous. So he put out a, a letter to lieutenants saying, hey, ask who wants to be on the safety committee. I immediately raised my hand. And so point of the story is, is I went to our first safety committee meeting and everybody seemed to volunteer me to be the chairperson for the safety committee. And I had no idea that I was going to love firefighter safety that much. But what I discovered was, is it's not just firefighter safety, it's occupational safety, health, and wellness. There's three areas here. It's not just firefighter wellness. It's not just firefighter safety. It's not just firefighter health. It's occupational safety, health, and wellness. It's an umbrella term. It's a holistic approach. And that's what our safety committee should be termed. So now I'm kind of voluntold that I'm going to be the chairperson of the safety committee. I don't know shit from apple butter. I never went to school for like risk management. So I'm trying to figure out what I need to do here. Now I'm at my point in time of career. Everybody's talking about data, oh, data-driven analysis. I'm like, whatever, data, that sucks. Like who needs data? And I really started to discover that data is everything. So I ended up going to HR with permission of my rank and file and said, hey, what are our, what are our costs here in the organization from a, you know, injury perspective, you know, um, illness, the whole gamut. And we were in the upwards of $700,000. So now I had something to go off of. How many people are getting hurt? What are What is the human and financial impact here within our organization? Just three departments, right? Uh, or, or I'm sorry, three, three fire departments within the city. And we built a team. And fast forward, we did amazing things. Now, I think it's important to say that there was dynamics between the city and the fire department. There was tension between the labor and the management. And what happened was, is when Chief Sturgeon became the fire chief, because the fire chief at that time retired, everything changed. And 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 Bill, or Chief Sturgeon, really inverted the pyramid. We talked about leadership. So he was at the bottom. He inverted the pyramid. Now, the fire chief was at the bottom, and the firefighter EMT was at the complete top. And it changed the trajectory of everything. And we started getting along with the city. Our our number of firefighter injuries were going down. Our costs went down. We took our costs down to as low as $30,000 a year. And in this transition, I'm like, I need to go to school. I need to figure something out. And so... Chief Sturgeon said, hey, you need to go to the National Fire Academy. I'm like, okay, that sounds good, but for what? He's like, safety program operation. So I go in January. It's freaking cold as shit. And, but, you know, I'm from Ohio. It's been a minute since I saw some snow. So get to remiss on that. And um, uh, anyhow, I go up there and I had this aha moment 
of why is there no type of collaborative with, with fire departments coming together and sharing better practices, not best practices, better practices? Why is there no communication, coordination, consistency in how we move forward in addressing firefighter safety, health, and wellness? And so I came back from safety program operations, told Chief Sturgeon, hey, I've got this idea. I think we bring some fire departments together from Central Florida. We host it. I'll be happy to you know, use my own time. I don't need overtime. Just let me have this. He said, okay. Of course, they ended up paying me overtime. We had food and drinks. I had Keith Tyson come up from the Firefighter Cancer Support Network as the guest speaker addressing firefighter cancer. This is 2015, right? About seven and a half years ago. So that was, you know, really a new evolving topic. Not necessarily new. We knew about cancer in the fire service in the 80s, yet now it's really being propelled in the fire service. So we had a great turnout and we had 17 fire departments come together and begin having communication coordination, consistency, and sharing policies and how to move forward in addressing firefighter wellness, right? Safety, health, and wellness. Well, now it's been about maybe six months, eight months. And now there's an opportunity for me to become a speaker at the Florida Fire Chief Safety and Health Conference that occurs every December in Orlando, Florida. So, Chief Sturgeon and I decided that we would together speak at this conference. It's my first time ever speaking at a conference. And the program name was how to have how to how to uh, create and administer an effective safety program for occupational safety, health and wellness. And everybody was in awe with it. We had a couple of fire departments come up specifically from South Florida and, and really ask and have inquiry about what the hell is this and what are you doing? We need this down here. We've been trying to create something. We just don't have the blueprint. And it seems like you do. And so um, it was Chris Bader who was on your podcast, along with his uh, city manager, former fire chief, Frank Babnett, two great people. And they luckily invited me to go down to their uh, fire department and help implement this. Essentially, when you say what was the genesis it was that. It, it was later on in 2016, Chris Bader and I coming together, us two, and creating the Firefighter Safety and Health Collaborative, um, which is now impacting thousands of firefighters, um, not just here in the state of Florida, but Georgia, Minnesota, and, and other places around the uh, country. Yeah, and it's, I mean, obviously, as you said, I've had those guys on. I had Dustin Hawkins, probably one of the most powerful episodes I've had ever, 700 episodes, but so many great people that came together. And I think you hit the nail on the head. One thing I've seen in the American fire service is we're just so siloed, as you mentioned. You know, city doesn't play well with county and, you know, Union doesn't play well with management, which drives me crazy because we're supposed to be grown-ups, not kindergarten kids, and you're spending years negotiating a contract, wasting all that money. But I remember being in Orlando and having a trailer park fire, and I was on a rescue. We just happened to go by, and there was a transformer you know, catching trees on fire, and we're calling Orange County's dispatch, and they're arguing with me of whose jurisdiction it is. I look, I can see Orlando Station 5 from where I'm sitting – these are all trailers surrounded by dead trees. We're going to have a fucking mass casualty if you don't ping someone out. Don't argue with me where I am. Send the nearest fucking engine. And this is the problem. 
these are my toys, I'm going home, you know. We have to have this communication, whether it's simple operations or EMS response, or if it's, like you said, knowledge sharing, because what I see is a whole bunch of people reinventing the wheel when there's people all over this country, all over this planet that have the solutions. They've already done the work. All we have to do is have the humility to say, hey, I see what you're doing, looks amazing. Can you show me how we can apply that to my department? Certainly. And, and, and I'm grateful for Chris Bader and, and uh, John Whalen and, and Frank Babnick for their leadership and the way that they've continued taking on the torch that, that I may have lit, you know, but certainly I couldn't have lit that with, with just myself. It took people like Chief Mike Tucker, who, you know, um, so supported the idea at a state level, who's now the fire chief for Flagler County. Um, it was people like, you know, Keith Cartwright, retired Chief Keith Cartwright and Chief Goff from Reedy Creek Fire Department that helped create the initial uh, collaborative. That wasn't just St. Cloud. I, I should have shared that. That was also Reedy Creek Improvement District. And I, I share that proudly um, that, you know, Keith Cartwright, retired Chief uh, Cartwright, really uh, had a strong set of knowledge at a state level because he was the chairperson for the safety committee um, for the Florida Fire Chiefs Association. So it was Reedy Creek and St. Cloud that established that initial safety, regional safety group here in Central Florida, later brought on, uh, um, you know, the the departments in South Florida, and now it's just spanning. And uh, I'm really proud of that. But again, going back, one of us is never as strong as one of us. And and this isn't just the one person's uh, recognition. It's it's everybody's. So I know that you ultimately transitioned out just like I did. Before we get to that point, as you worked through Taveras and then St. Cloud, were there any other kind of real career incidences that you respond to? And if you want to also expand on on your role in Pulse as well. Yeah, so um, June 12th, uh, I was at the fire station. Um, my shift started on, on the 11th. I was getting off duty um, on on the morning of the 12th. And uh, remember, so let me even back up. As I mentioned, I'm a world traveler, love to travel, had the good fortune of, of being all over the world and in really meeting some interesting people uh, from President Obama, shaking hands with them, talking to them with uh, the Irwin family in Australia to even being on Good Morning America. And so uh, through some some travels, I had opportunities to revisit Good Morning America multiple times, and uh, they became my friends. I became friends with Robin Roberts, and uh, you know Sam Champion invited me in one time uh, into the studio, and uh, ended up um, becoming friends with w- one of the producers who lived here in Orlando. And so Doug and I, who's a producer for Good Morning America, he calls me when I'm on duty and says, hey, Ryan, where are you? I'm at the fire department. He says, there's a shooting at the Orlando uh, Pulse nightclub, and I'm going. I really need your help. I says, well, I'm on duty. I can't leave. What do you need help with? He says, well, this is going to be a long incident. And so I I called my battalion chief. He says, yeah, go ahead and go. Um, There was some extra people. And so they let me leave. And this is like three... 3, 30, 4 o'clock in the morning. Anyhow, I, I, I leave and I start helping Doug and I become uh, an assistant to Good Morning America. And what that entailed was, was picking people up at the hospital 
that were victims of the shooting that still had blood on them and taking them to a live shot location for uh, 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 an interview. And so through that, I started being able to hear these stories, never thinking it would take a toll on my mental health, never thinking. I mean, here I am essentially now working in journalism all of a sudden, working in journalism. I, I, I never correlated that, that these individuals to see trauma, experience trauma. And now I have these people, these victims with blood on them in my personal vehicle, taking them to a live shot. You know, and, and, and they're wanting to do this. They're wanting to share their story. And so through that, um, I worked for 17 days with Good Morning America. And, and it just left me in awe with that experience. We ended up setting up uh, uh, our command center for Good Morning America, World News Tonight. So basically ABC News at a national level at the Grand Bohemian Hotel um, in downtown Orlando. And so... That experience really left me in awe. And, and still, I can't quite wrap my head around the full experience. But interestingly enough, I, I have two friends that responded to that, to that event, Josh Granada and Carlos Taveras, two amazing people. And, and these two guys are, are some of the best medics out there. And I remember in 2016, being nominated, and I'm only sharing this not for personal recognition, but to recognize them. In 2016, I was lucky enough to have been um, recognized or, or, or to have been notified that there was groups of people that put me in for the firefighter of the year, state of Florida firefighter of the year, and state of Florida fire service instructor of the year. One thing I had not mentioned is during some of this, um, time while I was working at St. Cloud, I was also an adjunct professor at Valencia College teaching fire science. And so I had a great passion for that because of my early childhood um, experience of, of education and lack of comprehension. I, I, I shared that with my students, that vulnerability. And, and so supposedly that was recognized. And the point here is, is that I could not logically go to that state this uh, Tallahassee to the state and be recognized as firefighter of the year, state instructor of the year. When you just had two firefighter paramedics risk their life. I mean, risk their life violated protocol to save not one, not two, three, four, five, six, seven, multiple human lives. And it was a chief, chief Brian Nadler who worked for the city of, of St. Cloud, a, a training chief who helped inspire me uh, and together recognize that I should not be the firefighter of the year. It's those two individuals that be should be the firefighter of the year. And so I, along with Chief Nadler, wrote a letter to the state kindly sharing my thought on the fact, while I appreciate them wanting to recognize me for the collaborative and being the instructor that I'm supposedly am and, and all of that stuff that really doesn't matter at the end of the day to recognize these two individuals that quite literally are heroes, heroes with superpowers in my opinion. And the state evaluated that and they did believe that these two people, uh, they're, they're, they're more than people. 
par firefighter paramedic Taveras and, and Granada um, do and, and are willing uh, and deserving of, of this award. Not only that, they said, you are too, Ryan. And so the state recognized all three of us. Beautiful. Yeah, you know, I've, I've wanted to for a while, but I need to get those two on the show. I had um, my two friends from Orange County um, who were on another transport unit that, that transported multiple patients. I had the LT from Station 5 and his perspective. And then I had one of the SWAT guys that made entry and ultimately killed the, uh, the terrorist. Um, three different episodes, three different perspectives. And... You know, I know that um, Joshua, for example, they had the incident, if I'm not mistaken, please correct me if I'm wrong, where it was uh, a council member who was being abusive to them. And then they did what I think any of us would have done. And then they ultimately got fired for it, or he did. Um, so I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of elements to their story from their, sure. you know, their, their journey into that, the Pulse incident, and then the organizational betrayal at the end of it. Yeah, they're 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 wonderful human beings. They're community and national leaders, uh, and and I'm just really thankful that um, those two were working together. They they maybe I shouldn't share so much. You know, I think having them on your podcast would be an inspirational uh, story and and uh, the dynamics of how those two got together uh, on that particular shift uh, was meant to be that night. There was a higher power. Um, serving that that night that's for sure but you know i i'm grateful for the state to to recognize them it was nice that they um allowed me to to stay in there you know it would have been okay if i had not been um you know just the recognition of itself of knowing that there's groups of people that you know admire the work that i did um but i didn't do it for for accolade for recognition i i did it because i saw that there was a void that there's a need and that it wasn't being addressed. And as my mentor said, every identifiable risk is a manageable risk. So are you going to leave it as a problem lying in wait, or are you going to address it? And me and a couple people that are way smarter than me addressed it, and um, it's having great impact. So with the media side, you've got a very unique perspective there. I've talked about this um, a lot recently. I mean, you know, our mainstream media, I think, are, are extremely divisive and are behind a lot of the division that we see and all these topics that we talked about. But one of the things that I really don't like is when there'll be a tragic scene and immediately people are thrusting microphones in these, you know, these victims or these family members. Retroactively, when you were here now, 41 years old, when you look back, was there any, any element of the ethical side of bringing these victims for, for an interview that maybe, you know, didn't, didn't sit as well as it should have? Yeah, so that's a great question. The one thing that I learned is that people want to share their story, that, that the media was not uh, uh, pushing. You know, I certainly had a very calculated decision in, in, you know, what my role and responsibility was working with ABC News. And, and am I essentially going on the other side, you know, um, of, of the spectrum here? And what I discovered was, is that people wanted to share, not all people. And for those that didn't, there was a lot of empathy. And I learned that from, from the, the, the national news is that there are people just like you and I happen to do a job, but, but they're empathetic as well. And if someone says, no, I'm not ready. They say, here's my business card, and if you are ready at any point in time, let us know. And so for me, I learned another side that made me more empathetic to the news. 
it, it, I feel like it, maybe I'm wrong with saying it's a full circle moment, but being in that environment, I got to learn that environment and, and learn that it's not as bad as what I made it to believe for so many years. Um, there was a lot of empathy. I mean, there was, Hey, what do you need? You know, from, you know, food, water, shelter, safety, like before the, you know, making sure that their most basic needs are met. It, it, it was, it was humbling. So that was a great question because, you know, I reflect on that a lot, you know, now that years have passed, would I do that again? And the answer is yes, I would have. Yeah, well, I mean, that's good to hear because that's what you would want to happen from the media. Now, obviously, we know that there are many people within that organization, not that specific one, but that profession that have no ethics. I mean, we see it blatantly, but sure. there's also the BBC and some of these amazing Al Jazeera and some of these journalistic groups that are just simply trying to disseminate news and are not violate. They're not chasing people down in cars with cameras hanging out and all that stuff that we see with a lot, of, especially the paparazzi side of the more sensationalist media. So I'm glad that your experience was a positive one. It, it really was. It, it was extremely positive. And, and I think, or I know, I don't, it's more than think. I know for a fact that my perception of, of the news and me, I still had an index of suspicion, right? Uh, you know, thereafter with other outlets, but it was significantly diminished because of what I saw them do to show their empathy and, and to earn their trust within the people that had just went through a horrific tragedy. Beautiful. Well, you walked us through, obviously, I'm assuming the biggest event of your career. I'm sure it would be the biggest event of anyone that was in Central Florida pretty much. What was it, you know, was there a kind of a compounding mental health element prior to you deciding to transition out or did that kind of happen simultaneously? Yeah. So in, in my career at the city of St. Cloud, serving on the um, committee, being the chairperson for the committee, I also saw the need again, because it's occupational safety, health and wellness, wellness, mental health being one of the pillars to having a sustainable committee. And that said, I, I saw a void in the mental health space. And so I helped develop our peer support team. And I've always really been an advocate for mental health and well-being. Yet I feel that this was really the turning point in my life and to where I am today. And so yeah, it was it was establishing our our St. Cloud peer support team that really uh, transformed uh, my life and, and putting more of mental health as a priority, for sure. So then talk to me about your decision to transition out into what you're doing today. Okay, so I, as you meant, as we mentioned, I have a hearing deficit. And so part of the safety committee uh, was to really build more of a comprehensive medical evaluation. We were not doing annual firefighter physicals. So essentially, with me being in that role of, of chair, and again, it wasn't just me, it was the committee as a whole, we determined that we needed annual physicals. Essentially, I could be getting myself out of a out of a career right now with promoting that, but it was the right thing to do. And so I knew that I only had a couple of years left and in, in hopefully passing these hearing tests. And it was my last hearing test with, with a particular doctor where 
he said, you know, you really didn't do well on your hearing test. I said, well, I don't ever think I do really well on my hearing test. He says, well, this one's questionable. And he said, turn around. And he started to whisper and he said, repeat what I say. And I became very defensive, very defensive. Well, that's because he made you turn around. He's standing behind you. I'd be defensive too. (laughs) Yeah, right. And, And so I'm like, tell me the exact decibel at which you just spoke. And he saw that I'm pissed. And and people that know me know that I'm a very caring guy, very loving guy. But like, I am about to go off on this doctor. I'm, I'm defensive, right? And so it was at that doctor's appointment that I knew if it's not this one, it's the next one that I'm getting my ass kicked out of the fire service. And for me, I wanted to go out on my terms, not of that of a, of a medical disability. And so... By this time, I've had the the platform of the collaborative and being able to travel around and and meet a lot of different chiefs. I took a bold move and I said, you know, I'm going to start a company, Ryan Gallican Associates. And so I started a company called Ryan Gallican Associates, which is an occupational safety, health and wellness firm that works with first responders in a risk management slash safety way. And uh, basically, I got my first contract with a with a fire department in May of 2018, and I said, "Well, let me make sure I can survive daily nine to five work life." So I started absorbing all of my vacation time and doing a test on seeing if I could survive the the Monday through Friday, you know, work, and it was challenging. And so I ended up putting in a a two-week notice with my fire department, and uh, June 29th, 2018 was my last shift. And that transition was probably the hardest thing I've ever went through in my life. It tested my resilience. It tested my courage, my strength, my grit to persevere. You know, I had a I had a goal, but was I really able to persevere? And and when when you know people say that there's an emotional detachment, be prepared for it. I had no idea, and it was challenging. But it wasn't until a year later that that the mental health aspect hit me, bro. A year later, I'm at a bar, having a glass of wine with dinner, uh, sitting at the table eating dinner, and. All of a sudden, like a light switch. And it really, it wasn't. It was cumulative. I saw it coming. I'm changing. I'm becoming more isolated. I went home and I just bawled. I bawled. I had never cried so hard in my life. And I'm like, what the hell did I do? It's been a year. And at that point, you know, not there long after, I started having suicidal ideations. Um, and, And what's so scary is that nobody knew, nobody, nobody, nobody ever asked me, Hey, you know, you're acting different or you're doing this or you're doing that. Nobody, nobody knew how to have that courageous conversation. And, you know, I'm, I'm very, very grateful to, to share that I'm doing extremely well. I, I have found that post-traumatic growth. I wrote a book called silent mayday, the clinician's guide to working with first responders and, and maybe I'm, I'm, I'm progressing forward too fast here, but essentially that book, Silent Mayday, was an opportunity for me to educate other psychologists, psychiatrists, 
licensed mental health counselors on how to tap into our high-risk occupation and work with us. Because not every clinician is made to work with a first responder. You know, not every person on planet Earth, as you say, can, can be a first responder. Well, not every clinician on this planet can, can or should work with a first responder. And so that book really helped me get in front of these clinicians and ensure that they were prepared to work with people. And, and sometimes people said, no, this isn't for me. And, and one of my dear friends and one who actually uh, works with me and at my company um, was, was one of those people. And she works with clinic, uh, with, with first responders. So again, I, I realized that didn't happen to me. It happened for me. Sometimes we just have to wait and, and trust life. I think that's the thing we have to trust life. That's part of hope is trust life, brother. And for whatever reason, I kept holding on and I could not be happier now. I, I, um, I'm just in awe with, with the experiences of life. Now, when you say you had the suicide ideation, was it the intrusive thoughts or had you got to the point of actually coming up with a plan? Yeah, so great point. It was significant intrusive thoughts and creating how would I complete suicide? Never writing things down, never selling things, but but formulating an idea on how would I complete suicide? One of the, again, I think the completely undiscussed elements that I've, again, like this has been an ongoing education for me. I mean, I'm, I'm the, the most selfish podcaster there is because I ask the questions that I want to ask, assuming that people want to hear the answers. But as I've accumulated all these lessons and heard all these stories, and I talk about this a lot because it needs to be spoken about. Of course, I think anyone can understand that when someone is suicidal, there's an element of wanting the pain to end, wanting the suffering to end. But, and this came out of the whole suicide is selfish conversation. When you listen to these men and women that were right there, like Dustin Hawkins, or attempted suicide and survived like Kevin Hines, there's this commonality over and over and over again, not everyone, but most of them, which is that feeling of being a burden, which then when you look at it from a selfish point of view, actually it's selfless to that person in that broken brain at that moment, you've got someone who is willing to die for complete strangers in their occupation. And now they're thinking the brain has convinced them I am a burden to this world and the world, my family, my friends, we better off if I take myself out of it so it's a selfless act to them at that moment were there any elements of that feeling a, a burden that you know in your journey or was it more kind of entering suffering what were the what were the emotions you pull out now with your clear eyes yeah it was it was loss of identity it was loss of purpose i i never felt as if i was a burden to the world or to people um but i i lost my essential purpose in life i i think you know, that that the job becomes such a, 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 an identity to us. You know, we wear the shirt. Look, I mean, I'm wearing a fire department shirt right here. Um, you know, we get the tattoo on our person. We back into a parking space. I mean, it, it, it really absorbs us and becomes our whole being that we forget being human and being an individual. There's nothing wrong with having pride in your occupation, but, but, for me, I, I I was so absorbed with it all that I lost my sense of purpose and I didn't know where I belonged. And so I started having that loneliness. 
I, I mean, the loneliness feeling was awful because I didn't feel like I belonged anywhere. I went from working with a group of, of men and women to working by myself. I'm a single guy. I have no kids. So I didn't even have my own family, you know, my own uh, family to come home to. And, it, it, you know, so for me, it was never a, a feeling of burden or uh, anything like that. It was just a lot of true intrusive thoughts and, and you know, how would I feel if I were to end my life? So, so for me, you know, I discovered it, it was talk therapy. It was talk therapy. Um, you know, some people call it counseling. Some, you know, sometimes I call it life coaching. Uh, but somebody to talk through it, to get through it. One of my uh, dear friends and, and uh, mentor, uh, Dwight Bain, he's a counselor, uh, says you got to talk through it to get through it. And isn't that the truth? And so that's what I did was, was show that vulnerability and, and know that I wasn't as strong as I could be uh, by myself. So I needed somebody else. I needed someone else to help path that way. And what, what my counselor did was saw a shattered mess of puzzle pieces and took up one piece at a time and looked at it. And, and I felt like what I would do is I would just look at this puzzle piece. Well, I didn't realize maybe I had to turn it around and turn it around again, or maybe even flip it over to see this piece connects now to this piece. And sorry, my eye watch went off. And so having another person's perspective and, and knowledge and skill and expertise, being able to connect and create these images or these experiences and, and, and better understanding creates better vision and understanding. And, and for me, I felt like that's when I started getting well again, is, is really being able to talk about it and not put it into a can and putting a lid on it and having it be this public safety pressure cooker. You know, I, I mean, never addressing the, the 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 middle school incident, never, you know, addressing other things. And now, you know, I think everybody should go to therapy. Go to therapy as a maintenance. We, we do it for our teeth. We do it for, you know, if you live in Florida or other parts of the world, you should go to a dermatologist, right? Some of it is, is hygienic practices. What are you doing to, to get another person's perspective? Because what I learned was is that we don't see things as the way they are. We see things the way we are through our experiences, through our biases. And one of the things that first responders do is this job jades us. Sometimes we're too analytical, right? Analyzing and seeing the worst in things. And, and so it's important to be a truth explorer and seeing the truth, living the truth. And trusting life. Well, with that loneliness, I think that's another, you know, thing that it's hard for people to understand. Well, you know, I'm a firefighter. I don't get lonely. That's what happens to, to children, you know. But you actually look at it, whether it's the retiree that's, you know, the, the bay door closed the last time behind them. And now they're, you know, maybe on their own because maybe their marriage fell apart when they were on the job. And now they're in an apartment on their own. Or something that someone mentioned recently, which I thought was really pertinent take high school kids you were amongst your tribe for you know four years straight maybe a lot of them were middle school and even elementary before that and then you graduate and now you're in an apartment on your own or you're in student housing on your own or wherever you find yourself next 
And that loss of tribe, when you look at it evolutionary, we're extremely vulnerable. You know, if you look at actual, you know, original tribes, if someone is out of that tribe, they're so vulnerable to being attacked by animals, other tribes, people, whatever it is. So we're supposed to feel anxious when we're outside the tribe. So unless we can find another tribe to be a part of, whether it's a CrossFit gym or a chess club or you know whatever it is, you, if you go from that cohesive crew that you work with to nothing, because we all know that these shifters are, you know, we, we, we touch base with them once in a while and then soon enough we're just running calls and exhausted and forgotten the, to keep in touch. So that loneliness piece, I think, is really important to bring into that factor as well. Am I sitting here, you know, at the core of my existence, missing being a part of something? Because that is evolutionary programmed into your DNA. Yeah, I, I mean, what a powerful perspective. Uh, you know, we we certainly know that that a lot of uh, kids are, are experiencing mental illness. I'm, you know, I, I'm a board member with uh, NAMI, National Alliance on Mental Illness. I'm part of the Greater Orlando chapter and serving on the board. I also um, am the chair for the ad- advocacy uh, committee, and that brings a, a great honor being able to advocate for mental health here locally within Orange, Osceola, and Seminole counties, but also at a state level and and to have these types of conversations. And the conversations are being had, um, just not everybody knows about it. And and I think that we need to do a better uh, job at at making sure that people belong, because sometimes people just go along in order to belong. And and that's not healthy either, right? You you really got to find your tribe, uh, a group, uh, that brings purpose and meaning and inspiration. For some people, it might be a church. For some people, it might be a nonprofit. For, you know, I mean, there's just so many things. And I think for us, it's important to never lose your purpose. Um, I'm learning right now uh, more about Ikigai. Um, and, and that has a lot to do with life meaning and purpose. And uh, it's it's a Japanese term. I'm getting ready to uh, get certified in that. And, uh, so yeah, just so many neat perspectives. But I, I, I think what you said with with tribe and kids losing that—that's the truth. That's the truth. And then you know, just from from a perspective of the worldwide pandemic, not to to hover that again. I, I think I mean I'm so tired of hearing about COVID, but it's real and it has impact. You know, kids that now were were you know being schooled at home. You know, so many different dynamics. Well, I just was actually reached out to my doctor friend who I brought on during COVID to give the lens of here's here's the real side of COVID. Here's a physician who works in ER, ICU, and this is what he's seeing in Texas. And, you know, they are losing a lot of people. And so because I wanted to have a balanced, nuanced conversation and educate the audience so they can make their own decisions on vaccinations and all that stuff. The other side was Steve Davis, who got let go from Orange County for not enforcing a vaccine mandate list of which people actually had exemptions on. So both sides of the story, middle ground, commonalities. But I reached out to Chris because I'm looking at everyone getting just freaking brutalized by this latest flu strain. And to me, I'm like, well, if all these young, healthy people are getting knocked sideways, surely we're probably losing a shitload of people again. And when I looked it up, I think it was from September to December, we've lost, the CDC estimates, 50,000 people in three or four short months. You see that on the news? No, because it doesn't fit the narrative of the COVID scaremongering. 
another virus is murdering lots of people like they do every single year. And the only truth that I've been talking about on here is that we need to make the nation physically and mentally healthier. So whatever comes their way, whether it's, you know, a microorganism, whether it's heart disease, you know, the, the, the more, the healthier we are, the less chance that is of losing a family member to any of those things. But that, as with the gun conversation, the health conversation was lost amidst the politicization, politicization, if I can spell that, say that word properly, um, the politics around you know, the the pro or anti-vaccine virus, you want, you know, insert thing here. The middle ground was like, we have an obesity epidemic. We have a mental health crisis. If we focus on that, the death toll from whatever comes away is going to reduce. But now no lessons were learned. Another flu virus sweeps through. And unbeknownst to most people, tens of thousands of people are dying from this virus. Yeah, that's alarming. I had no idea that it was 50,000 uh, people. I mean, that's a short amount of time. Yeah. Um, you know, I, 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 going back to the mental health conversation for, for those, you know, I know that, that you do such a wonderful job talking about mental illness and, and people, whether it be their own lived experience. But one thing that I, I want to share as a board member for NAMI Greater Orlando is, is the power of ever, so many people are trying to find a way to navigate um, their lived experience or that of, of someone that they love or care about. And one great resource is NAMI Greater Orlando. They provide free training and, and classes uh, for families. There's a program called Family to Family. And I'm not trying to, I, I mean, I am advocating for them, James. Uh, you know, I, I want to be respectful. Uh, you know, I get no money for this. But it, as a mental health advocate and well-being coach, I think it's important to share what resources are available. And one often that is underutilized is that of NAMI. It's the um, nation's largest grassroots mental health organization in the world. And it's really dedicated to building better lives for millions of Americans that are affected by mental illness. And there's programs for individuals with, with lived experiences. And as I mentioned, maybe you have a child or a significant other with, with a diagnosis Taking that family to family is really important and learning on how you can uh, better help someone you care about. Um, you know, there's Homefront for Veterans. There's so many programs out there that really help uh, take away the stigma on mental illness. And I'm, I'm proud to uh, be serving on that board. Beautiful. Well, thank you for letting us know about that resource. I'll put that on the uh, webpage for this episode as well. Speaking of coaching then, talk to me about the Mental Hygiene Project. Yeah, so I started a, a second company. My business partner and I started a company called the Mental Hygiene Project um, several years back, and we're really uh, here to empower minds, accelerate performance, and boost resilience in the workforce. We're an Orlando-based company that works with organizations, associations, to really empower leaders to better define a culture of health and well-being and, and overall uh, wellness, as well as individual and group coaching to help strengthen people's resilience. Resilience is not a genetic trait, meaning, oh, well, this person's born with resilience. This person is, is uh, you know, has a, a least amount of uh, resilience than this person. It doesn't work that way. Resilience can be derived or is derived on the way that someone learns to uh, 
be able to maintain composure and adaptability. The point is, is that you can teach someone to become more resilient. And, and the fact is, is that uh, research goes to show that employers should invest in, in, in training. And so the Mental Hygiene Project has a director of learning and research, Dr. Shannon Taylor, who's an associate professor at University of Central Florida. He does all of our technical papers and all of our research and helps uh, create some education components. And all of our information is peer reviewed by a uh, licensed mental health counselor, Claudia Swagger, who uh, is a, a Central Florida counselor. And so we do professional speaking, we do coaching, uh, and uh, we also have an app out. Beautiful, where do people find the app? They can find it on the Apple iOS system. We're not quite yet on uh, uh, Android, but if they go into the app store and put in the mental hygiene project, they will then find Mind Coach. There's a lot of Mind Coach apps out there. So putting the Mental Hygiene Project will ensure that you find ours. It's a free download, uh, lots of free things. There is a one in-app purchase. So one last thing before we go to some closing questions. You and I actually retired from the fire service the same year. I think it might be in the same month. I was either June or July. I forget. Obviously, my, my road was... Not quite the same as you. I just rehabbed an injury and could have gone back on the floor, but was at a crossroads, my last department. Um, people who listen to us for a while probably understand. I felt like I could do more outside the walls than I could inside. Um, so the podcast is what, you know, really made me transition out. That was my purpose. Um, and the, the false multiplier, taking 14 years in the fire service and now, you know, bringing these amazing people that I have on the show to, thousands of people rather than responding to one or two you know per call um when people are listening at the moment some are ride or die going to be the full fire service career they're, they're either they a they absolutely adore it they don't feel like they got any mental or physical health deficits at all um b more often than not people are just going to hold out for the pension which i think is a less um you know ideal situation but then see you've got people that have been phenomenal firefighters, but they've hit a wall. You know, I've, I've talked about this a lot. Anaheim, my crew there, was the pinnacle of my career. And I never really found that dream team again. Worked with some phenomenal responders through the rest of my career at, at times, but never had that cohesion and that support that was Anaheim Fire Department, you know, when that one was working there. So you've got these great responders and they've they just at the point where it's not they don't love the job anymore, but they realize that they're they're swimming upstream now, and it's there's probably no end in sight. Talk to me about empowering a police officer, a corrections officer, or, you know, a firefighter, a paramedic, in understanding their value and the application of another career outside the fire service, because. I think that, you know, we talked about organizational stress. Sometimes people kind of feel chained to that department, chained to that, that, uh, pension or that healthcare or whatever it is. And they believe that the only skill set they have is to fight fires or, you know, cut someone out of a car. Um, what I've realized is that those basic principles that we have behind our skills can be used in a diverse set of, um, you know, organizations and, um, 
uh, professions outside the fire service and you can still surf you can still make the world better so with you making that choice with your hearing and then now obviously working with all these people what would you say to the firefighter that's on the fence of taking that leap of faith themselves what did you say i didn't hear you no i'm kidding my hearing joke um yeah great question i think that that we really have to tap in so what are our signature strengths? What do we want to do? What brings us joy? And a lot of us are just living on autopilot. We wake up, we take a shower, we shave, we brush our teeth, we eat breakfast. If you have kids, you get the kids ready. What are you doing to really create self-awareness? There's three aspects of behavioral change, self-awareness, self-reflection, and self-management. Self-awareness is, is recognition. So what are you doing to recognize your your level of happiness and the things that bring you joy and and what you want to do with your life? I, I, I also want to share that. Let me share the other two. Self-reflection at the point of contact, being able to self-reflect on the things that you just became aware of. But then self, self-management is self-regulation, Right. And so regulating yourself to being accountable to what you want to do. Another aspect, in my opinion, is that we have to understand that your career can bring you joy, but does that ultimately make you happy? I think so many of us are in the pursuit of happiness that we truly believe that love, relationships, job, finance, and the car that we drive brings us happiness. The science of happiness is not that. The science is not in your job, the money that you make. So I would advise someone to really get a life coach, a life coach to help you work on things, to get through things and create a vision of where you want to go. This isn't always done just by sitting down and, and writing your ideas on a sheet of paper. That, that can be the start of becoming self-aware, having self-reflection, and, and maybe having some self-regulation. And part of the self-regulation part to being accountable is then going to a life coach to help you navigate that. But I think it's important to understand what won't bring you happiness. And ultimately, it's not your career. It's not the money. Because what happened to me was I thought leaving my career because of a hearing deficit and making six figures. I mean, at one point I was making $15,000 a month. Well, what did that do to my happiness baseline? It shot it through the roof for a couple of months and then it dropped below the baseline. So I really truly think that you need to be deliberate in what you want to do, where you want to go, what is the impact that you want to make on the world? What are some things that bring you joy? And knowing that one of us is never as strong as all of us, just as my mentor says, sometimes getting that life coach to sit down with you and create a vision, maybe it could be a trusted friend, a loved one, but doing it alone isn't always the answer. Brilliant. Well, I appreciate that because it's not something that really gets discussed, but I can say, do I miss wearing the uniform? Do I miss making entry on a fire or an extrication or you know, saving someone pre-code? Absolutely. But I also did that for 14 years. Do I love even more the opportunity, the, the potential that one interview like this might reach someone who's suicidal or who's two weeks from a back injury or, you know, is having marital problems and something that the guest said 
altered their sleep, their fitness, their mental health, and now that saved a life that way that I'll never even get to see. Therefore, there's no glory, there's no ego, but it's still the same mission. Absolutely. And I see, you know, some of my friends are transitioned out of the military, out of the first responder professions that are just happier now. Now, they've got no regret from doing that amazing profession wearing the uniform, but they realize that life is short and I can take that skill set I got from X amount of years serving and now serve in a different way. And like I always joke, there's not going to be a, a topless podcaster calendar. So, you know, it, we're a lot less attractive, you know, in, in the public eye than a firefighter is wearing the uniform. But it was never about that. It was about the mission. Yeah, powerful. I, I think, you know, for, for some of us, one of the quotes that I came up with during the pandemic was it's important to manage your mind. Otherwise, your mind may begin to manage you. And we get these intrusive thoughts. We get these these uh, cognitive distortions that that aren't true, and they play mental mental gymnastics with us. And one thing is that we may get imposter syndrome. Hey, I'll never have, I'll never get, I'm not good enough for this. And the fact is, is that you've got talents and gifts that you should be sharing with the world. And if I had not made that bold move, I would not be working with the clients that I'm working with. And, and I'm humble when I say this, but I am working with some major clients. I'm working with a with a, an association of a major airline, um, uh, doing uh, some services with their peer support team. Our app developer just uh, created an app for them. Uh, American Airlines is looking at the apps right now, and and so, you know, I'm humbled about it. But I would have never thought that Ryan Gallick, the the young kid who, you know, was held back in the second grade and had a speech impairment would be a professional speaker, trainer, consultant. And and I had to believe in myself and be that truth explorer and identifying and knowing the truth and not allowing the 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 cognitive distortions, the disbeliefs that went into my psyche take anchor and and grow on me. And I want everybody that's listening to this podcast do the same thing. You're a gift to this world. How are you going to share it? But it's within you. And again, I, I go back to trust life. But my whole point, I loved being a firefighter. It was a humbling experience. But today, my goal is to enhance humanity. To enhance humanity. Love it. Beautiful, mate. All right. Well, I want to throw some closing questions at you before I let you go. That's okay. Yeah, absolutely. So the first one I love to ask, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Oh, gosh. Um, yes. The answer is a profounding yes. I think uh, the book Think Again by Adam Grant is absolutely brilliant. Uh, it basically, and, and, and I encourage everybody to read the book, yet you know, he says there's people that think like a politician. There's people that think like a preacher. There's people that think like a prosecutor. But very few people think like a scientist. And scientists are always rethinking. They're always reevaluating their work. And and it gets me to rethink and re-strategize because same is lame. And and so rethink is is uh or think again rather is a powerful book. Uh, character Carved in Stone by Pat Williams. My gosh. Um, character Carved in Stone. It talks about values and beliefs with individuals, and there's uh, virtues there from West Point. Um, I used to not like to read, 
but I, I try to read every single day now. You you just learn, and it provokes thought. And and if you're really reading, I used to not be a reader, as I mentioned, but allow it to spark some healthy curiosity. Truly, let it spark some healthy curiosity. Sometimes I just stop and and and, and reflect and say, "What did I just read or comprehend?" And sometimes I'm like, "I don't even know what I just read." Well, because my mind must have wandered. So I go back to that page. But reading has transformed my life. Beautiful. Yeah, I think that's the thing. There's you know, people say, "Oh, I don't read." It's like, well, you don't read what? You know, there there's book about everything out there literally there's millions and millions of books so find something that will interest you really short firefighters are so chronically sleep deprived i don't think war and peace is a good start if you're trying to get back into reading so pick you know man search for meaning or something short and impactful like that and then start working your way up from there victor frankel great book absolutely absolutely all right well then what about a movie and or documentary um, you know, I, I, I knew this question was coming. I, I, you know, I listened to your podcast. Um, I, I'm struggling with that one. I, I really am struggling. Uh, I think the last documentary I, I did was on 9-11. Um, as far as movies, I can't watch movies. I'll fall asleep. Um, funny little sad fact about me. It's, it's crazy. Um, I can't even tell you the last movie I watched. So uh, really, that's a hard one for me to answer. I think the last documentary I, I, I saw was on 9-11. Yeah, was it the one with the two French brothers? It was not that one. Okay, because I had them on the show it's and been, it was yeah, fascinating. It's been quite a while. Brilliant. All right, well, then the next question then. Is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I know there's a lot of talented people. I I part of me uh my immediate thought is is bill sturgeon uh bill sturgeon is such a humble genuine kind and caring man that truly puts people first he puts it before customer citizens profit he puts people first and knowing that if he invests in his people his people will invest in others and and Bill Sturgeon, Chief Bill Sturgeon, has hands down been the most supportive and influential person in my life. While I owe so much to my parents for giving me a foundation, I truly would not be where I am today if it was not for Bill Sturgeon. And I don't say that selfishly. I I I know that there's other people that could get something from from his stories. He, he's former military, he's been a, a city manager, he's been a fire chief, and so many other things. And I think his different perspectives could really ignite some, some passion with leaders. Beautiful. Well, thank you for that. All right, well, then the very last question before we make sure people know where to find you, what do you do to decompress? Uh, travel. Uh, you know, obviously that's far and in between. So I enjoy reading. I enjoy sometimes just sitting. Uh, it, it is hard for me to meditate. Um, as, as much as I try to practice mindfulness, I'm a very hyper guy. Um, sometimes I go out for a walk. But, you know, we talk about self-care and spiritual and behavioral and physical. I think it's also important to really practice the other self-care too. And so for me, I enjoy 
uh, find food. Before I became a firefighter, I I was uh, uh, was going through culinary school, um, so I enjoy to cook. Sometimes that's therapeutic for me. I enjoy going out to eat. Uh, however, my number one thing that just really resets me and and creates so much inspiration is to travel. And in 10 days, I leave for Japan, Thailand, and Cambodia. And there's some things I'm going to do out in Cambodia that uh, that are, are more private um, in the sense of that I'm, I'm going to really do some things for some people that will hopefully change their life. And for me, it's the art of gratitude and savoring moments. Um, if I had a closing message, uh, and I'm emotional right now, but it's it's to savor moments. Look up savoring. It's a it's a a, a, a word in, in psychology. Um, so that's what I do. Practice gratitude, savoring moments, eating fine foods, um, going out for a walk, and and giving into humanity. It fuels me. My 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 life is my story. Well, we share one the last time. I'm actually about to go on a round-the-world trip with a bunch of special operations people next month. And when I say around the world, I mean literally all seven continents in a week, which is insane. We're not going to get to do much uh, you know, tourist stuff because I'm going to be supporting these guys while they skydive and then do a marathon and then swim in each of these. But, um, but I mean, traveling is a huge thing for me as well. Where in Japan are you going to be? Because I actually used to live there. Okay, uh, Tokyo. Um, I have a long layover uh, in Tokyo, 18 hours, and then I'll be in uh, um, Thailand. I'm going to Bangkok, Phuket, and um, uh, Chiang Mai, and then I'll be going to Angkor Wat and uh, Samrit in Cambodia. Beautiful. Well, then one more tangent before you know we make sure everyone knows where to find you. One thing I love to ask people that have traveled a lot is – in all these places that you visited, my philosophy, and it goes exactly along with the siloing of the fire service, is there are countries that do certain things so, so well. And when I come across that, like Portugal's uh, drug policy or Norway's prison system, I go, well, God, why aren't we all doing this? Why aren't all the countries kind of using this blueprint and, and raising each other up? On all the places that you've been to, were there any kind of that gave you that that insight you saw a particular area in that country and you're like man if we brought this to america it would be amazing yeah i i think it was having conversations with people in australia that their their suicide rates are very minimal uh the lowest of of any country i had ever visited and you know i i certainly would love to go back to australia and and learn um why that is um firsthand uh, yeah, you know, when I travel, I, I kind of go off the beaten path. I I enjoy talking to people, but I, I also try to disconnect from work. But, you know, I think that's something I'll be more intentional in. And in, in when I travel is is to learn more about policies or, or more about why are they doing that? And um, in a funny kind of way, hell, make it a tax write off on my uh, on my travels now. Right. Being a business guy in mental health. Why not? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, every other corporation is doing it. You may as well do it too. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, that's great. Congratulations on, on your trip uh, coming up. Safe travels uh, to you. I'll have all seven continents finished later this year. Looking forward to it. But in one week, that uh, that's impressive, my friend.
Yeah, well, like I said, what's impressive is what they're doing. I'm just watching and supporting. For people listening, I'm sure they want to, you know, learn more about the two organizations that you've created um, and then, you know, reach out to you personally. So where are the best places to find you online? Yeah, you can find me uh, on LinkedIn uh, by my name, Ryan Gallick, R-Y-A-N-G-A-L-L-I-K. I'm also on Facebook, um, or you can visit my website, www.thementalhygieneproject.com. Beautiful. Well, Ryan, I just want to say thank you so much. As I said, we met, you know, in the, the collaborative years ago. I think I was at my last department, but it was the, the, the venue was Orange County, which is my previous department. But I met you and Chris and Dustin and all these other amazing people on that day. And here we are now. You're not working in a fi- as, a, as a firefighter anymore. I'm not. And we're in these two different places. So I want to thank you so much, not only for just coming on and sharing some of your knowledge of what you're doing now, but also being vulnerable and sharing some of the, the more traumatic stuff. So thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Everyone take, uh, take care and stay well.